Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the fifth installment in our Halloween retrospective series. Today we are discussing Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. Now, is it Revenge Directed or is it Return of Michael Myers? It is Revenge. Is it the fourth one that's the Return of Michael Myers? Yes, he returns in the fourth, which you can go back and listen to in the archives, and he gets revenge. I don't... Mm, I guess we'll discuss what he is getting revenge on in this movie. Oh, I see. That's confusing. Why would... So, Halloween 4 is the re- return of Michael Myers. Halloween 5, the revenge of Michael Myers. Aha. Correct. I'm now on the same page. Stealing a little bit from the playbook of George Lucas, Revenge of the Sith. Just a little bit. Just just, just a tad. Or maybe it's the other way around. Eh. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> this movie is directed by Dominique Othenin Gerard, who is Swiss. And if you have never heard of them, I don't blame you. He has basically done nothing still has done nothing the only other thing that caught my eye he would go on to do the tv movie omen for the awakening oh the omen uh yeah i it didn't come in the box set i am not about to go watch a tv movie of the omen Ugh. yeah when it says tv movie and it's a horror it's a horror flick uh-huh uh yeah, I don't I don't know. That's a that's pushing it for me. It might be better than that Liev Schreiber one. That wouldn't be that hard to beat. The one that we watched together? The the new one? The remake? The 2006 remake? Yeah. That's the one that I'm thinking of. That movie is garbage. That was no, that was very bad. Almost laughably bad. Oh. So I don't know. Open for it could be better. Not gonna find out. Yeah. Anyways, this movie is written by Michael Jacobs, Dominique Othien Jawad, Shim Bitterman, and all of them have done nothing. So Yeah, so we essentially except for the returning characters, that being Loomis and uh Jamie, uh everyone right. else there is pretty new all the way around the table. Oh, yeah, Donald Pleasance is back, Daniel Harris is back, Ellie Cornell is back, I believe that is Rachel, Bo Star, Jeffrey Landman, Tamara, Glenn, Jonathan Chapin, Matthew Walker, Wendy Foxworth, Betty Carvalho, and Troy Evans, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, these people are all no names. Yeah. Well, I guess we do get Alan Hay- uh, Howorth back for the music. Yes, that is true. He is coming back. He... Uh, picked up, picked it up with John Carpenter in the second or third movie. I can't remember now, but he's been on train for quite a while. Yeah, yeah he has. He's been doing it since Halloween 2 at the very least. The movie was given a budget of $5 million, which is the exact same budget as the last one. Uh, the domestic box office for this movie, $11.6 million. Ooh. Well, it doubled its budget, and so I guess they made some, but... That's not eleven point six million is not good. It's a slim profit, and 
normally a sequel should hopefully gross more than the original the or or the predecessor i should say because halloween 4 made over three times its budget right which is well it's not great for the for how much it probably should have made but it's still a lot better than this right and this movie was in theaters for about three weeks that's it that's it halloween 4 was in for three weeks also oh okay but still, three weeks is not even a month. No. That is crazy. And the reason is, is because the second week, it fell to number six at the box office. Week three, it fell to number 15. Then it was pulled from theaters. And it was also, well, like I said, number number four was in theaters for three weeks. But it was number one two weeks in a row. And then at week number three, it was number five. So I don't, I don't know why they pulled it for certain but i should note that this movie on week two it gained 12 theaters with a and that's not many theaters this movie opened in only 1482 theaters Mm. that's small maybe it was just costing them more to keep it in the theater than it was to not that's very possible because this, like I said, this movie had a 43.7% loss. That's, I mean, that's not terrible, but what is terrible is going into week three, it lost 419 theaters and it, and it was, the numbers were down 72.6% in the third week. Yeah. Yep. That's not good. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, this movie actually did not open number one. It opened number two at the box office, and it's kind of funny because it made back its budget with five million opening weekend number two, yeah. and it was beat by the Kirstie Alley John Travolta movie, and maybe Bruce Willis is in it also. Look who's talking about a talking baby. I think. Mm, yeah, I have not heard of that one. I I think I did see it a very long time ago, but I. I can't remember. Anyways, that's. It does make sense that Christy Alley, John Travolta, much bigger stars than Donald Pleasance and Daniel Harris. Right. And Bruce Willis. Right. I, I think he's in it. Exactly. Anyway, so. I did think it was also interesting that Halloween 4 um, was in about 200 to 300 more theaters. I don't know why they would normally the sequel you would put out in more theaters because oh this this movie did so well the sequel's going to do better so put it out in more places but it wasn't so I don't understand from what I heard Mustafa Akkad who is the headmaster of all of this Halloween stuff he's not alive anymore it's his son now yeah but back then he said they were drunk off the success of Halloween 4 that they just rushed right into Halloween 5. Because this movie came, literally came out one year later. This movie came out October 13th, 1989. So between the re- literally between the release of both movies, there was a year, which is fast. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty fast. But at the same time, not, I, not terribly fast. It could be worse. We could have pulled a Matrix 2 and 3 and released in like six months after, after the other one. Uh, but yeah, that is still pretty quick. Usually it takes one or two years for a sequel like this to come out. They really wa- they really wanted to rush this. I mean, it's, it's see, the uh, original came out in 79, 
and we had to wait a couple wait a few years to get two right no no two yeah. came out like a year after right uh no it took a couple years to okay. get two and then still a couple more like by the time three came out it had been a number of years i think yeah well anyways my, my point is it's been a about a decade at this point since the original, and we have five. I mean, that's they're pushing out. They're pushing these out pretty quick. I mean, uh, now it's getting to be a yearly basis, not every couple of years. It sounds like, right? So this is kind of one of the first type of trends we've seen with most popularized. I would say with the Paranormal Activity franchise, where or the Saw franchise, make the film super cheap. That they'll make easily make a killing at the box office because their budget was so low and right. the marketing would rely on not so much TV advertisements because it's horror, but mostly kind of internet type stuff. And this, we are kind of seeing that right here where they're kind of giving it a really cheap budget. They are making profits and they're pushing one out every year really quickly. Right. And adjusting for inflation, this is actually the lowest grossing Halloween movie in the series with an adjusted total of 25 million. And that is in today's dollars. Yes. Not great. I mean, I mean, okay. The ratio of budget to revenue is good, but not fantastic, which I'm sure is what they were going for. I mean, that seems to be the reason why a lot of these horror movies are so uh, cheaply made is because they, if they do it right, they can get make back some serious bank. Because with uh, yeah, like you just said, paranormal activity, like the budget, a couple thousand dollars, and it made millions, which is a crazy revenue ratio. So well, and even yeah, and even for the first movie in the series, it was made for three hundred thousand dollars, and right. it made forty seven million at the box office. Right, and so with these movies, I mean, you have to kind of hit that nice little sweet spot. Uh, when you have so many sequels, it's not so sweet anymore. But uh, we've seen this with Paranormal Activity as well. It's just kind of repeat. Uh, these They come out and they pump them out every, uh, I guess, on a yearly basis for them as well. Uh, that the audience is just like, I don't really care. Even though they still make back the good revenue ratio. Right, and I don't believe this movie was able really to do that. They spent $5 million and they got $6 million back. So basically they just got back a million dollars. It right. doesn't seem worth the effort if all you're going to turn a profit of a million. And I don't know if that budget is including marketing. I don't think they did very much marketing for this movie because I had a really hard time finding an official trailer, and I don't believe I ever did find an official trailer. Yeah, I found a trailer. Um, let me look at my history on YouTube real quick, and I'll tell you if it says official, because it seemed too good to be true when I was watching it. Uh, I it, thought the it same thing. It just different. Well, I know it couldn't have been at the... The one that I watched anyway, I didn't watch the full thing because it was two and a half minutes, and the all audiences at the beginning seemed far too new for 89 plus it said anchor bay entertainment which makes me think it could be a possible re-release trailer anyways the the trailer i saw from youtube was one of the first ones and it was yeah, what i, I just think said. i saw the same one as you did 
now that I think about it. So I thought this trailer, it, it was super professional, and I thought the trailer was macabre, rock solid, super exciting. It looks like the best since the original, if I'm just going off the trailer. It looked incredible, and it made me want to go see it day one. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree from the trailer that we watched. It did look very professional, and I really liked how it began with a lot of dialogue, and it's, the music in the background is just kind of a drone at this point, and then as it slowly moves into uh, the Halloween stuff, uh, that music begins to just take over, and there's no more dialogue. All you see is a bunch of action. Uh, yeah, it really sets the tone for a Halloween movie. I would consider this at least the one that we watched, if it is or is not uh, official, because there isn't even a trailer link on the IMDb page. So, from if this is the official trailer, which I can't say it is or is not, it's a really well-made trailer, regardless, and it does. I would consider it. If it were an official one, I would consider it to be one of the best that we've seen. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with that. It was yeah. very well done. And like I said, it looks like we're getting the best Halloween since the original. I don't think these Halloween movies have been very good about marketing. They don't. The trailers are usually very poorly done. And they, I don't think they're really hard to find. They don't, I don't, I think in order to make these movies so cheap and in order to get a profit, that's why they don't put out the trailers, especially for these later sequels. Right. I mean, to be fair, they may not need too much marketing because you stick Halloween at the very beginning, you know exactly what it is. Uh, the original at this point has made such a big impact already that it, it doesn't really need to market itself too much, uh, except to say, hey, we're releasing another one. That's at least how I'm seeing it, and I think that's pretty much their mindset. Currently on IMDb, this movie holds a 5.2. So, it, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the second to last lowest, right before Halloween 3. As of right now? Yes. Yes, not this is not the second to last lowest of the series, but so far what we have reviewed, yes, this is the second to last lowest from the movies we have reviewed. Okay, got it. Yeah, I believe Halloween 3 has like a 4.7 or something. Yeah, it's not, it's really pretty low. It's really bad. Yeah. 5.2 is bad. The four, The fourth one holds a 5.9, almost a 6. Yeah. Which isn't great, but it's mediocre. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, I couldn't find a cinema score for it. I guess cinema score did not go ahead and pull this movie, but huh. I did go check how many critics uh gave it a gave it a thumbs up, a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, only 14%, which translates to a 3.6 out of 10 by Rotten Tomato standards. Wow. Yeah. Uh... Ooh, this is not, this is a very interesting movie because we can't find a trailer. There's, there's no cinema score. It seems like they are, are. It almost feels like they're trying to hide it, or nobody cared, which I find the latter to be more realistic. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the latter as well. I think by this point it had been ten years. The fourth one, like I said, it did fairly well. People were excited. Michael Myers was back. But I think after coming back after a year, people did clearly people did go see this movie, not enough to do as well as the one before it. 
But, eh. So, and even the audience gave this movie 38%. And I should note Halloween 4 had 29% for the critics and 53% for the audience. Quite the difference in numbers. Yeah, quite the difference. It sounds like we're getting into some uh, fatigue if we haven't already which I would argue we kind of have ever since probably three, we've kind of entered Halloween fatigue at this point. There's just so much of Halloween that no one really wants to go see it anymore. Right. And the reason I am bringing up number four so much is because four, five, and six are a trilogy. Gotcha. Okay. It's not apparent in the fourth movie. It does become more apparent once you watch 4, 5, and 6 all together. And this movie does start to introduce certain aspects we will get into in a little bit. And those are fully, uh, I I guess fully, maybe not so much fully. Yeah. (laughs) They are explored in the sixth one. And you can see there is, they do work as a trilogy. Gotcha. Okay, I was wondering, I I knew that this was pretty much a direct sequel from 4. Uh, just from the just from the first few scenes. Oh yeah. Uh, but we haven't we haven't gotten to the next one yet, so I, I of course couldn't speak to that at the moment. Yeah, so it definitely is more closely related to the fourth one than it really is to the first or second movie. Right. Got it. And okay. if you go back and listen to my Halloween canon timeline, which I highly recommend that you do, and make sure to pull up the infographic in the description. I will lay out everything, why certain choices were made, and the times in the movies, and between the different movies, and all the different timelines, because yes, this movie is is still connected, like number five is still a sequel to number one and number two, but it's it's its own canon and if you go back and listen don't worry no spoilers in that one you'll get everything laid out for you gotcha yes so there really wasn't a whole lot of information about the production of this movie i couldn't find a whole lot the most that i could find was in the original script jamie was still evil like in the end of halloween 4 and we've seen in halloween 5 this is pretty much retconned and yeah so apparently uh one of the writers said the way halloween 4 ended i thought i was going to oh i'm sorry this is daniel harris saying this the way who plays Jamie in the movie, the way Halloween four ended, I thought I was going to be the killer. I thought it would have been fun to come back as the killer or Michael's sidekick, scary but fun. Yeah, we'll get into this retcon of an opening for five uh, here in a little bit. But yeah, I was there. Really, isn't too much about this production other than maybe a couple of ideas that were introduced and then scrapped. It seems like everything went pretty much okay there weren't really any big stories to come out of this which is which is interesting to say the least but at the same time they ru- it seems like they rushed it pretty quick and and so i guess there really wasn't time for that kind of stuff i don't know it there really isn't much here like you said th- this film is kind of a mystery which is interesting because this is halloween 5 we're talking about 
Well, I do know this this movie was originally much bloodier. I did see a little bit of a documentary where the director was saying how he really wanted to make Halloween 5 a very bloody, gory slasher movie. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and all of these crazy uh, kind of rip-off type movies were all going down the slasher genre, and many people say Halloween pioneered the modern slasher genre. Well, that's a debate for another time. Yeah. But anyways, I can see why they would want to do that, especially because we're nearly into the 90s. And I would say this movie is still fairly tame because all the previous movies, I just don't think they've been that violent. Maybe back then they were, but I just even feel for back then, it's really not going that far. And the director wanted it to be much bloodier, but Mustafa Akkad said, no way, the original wasn't that bloody and gory, and it really worked, so we're not going to go down that road. And I should note, this movie was originally rated X. That did not mean pornographic back then. I do have an article on Silver Screen Guide you can read about 10 movies you didn't know were originally rated X. Well, this movie was, of course, just rated X for violence and gore, and I believe number four might have been the same. But anyways, they cut that out, and there's no violent or gory scenes that you can get. They've just been stored away somewhere. Right, yeah, there is the laundry shoot scene when Jamie gets stuck in it towards the climax. I guess that would be at the climax. Uh, Yeah, that was meant to be really bloody, and that's part of the reason why I got that X rating, so they had to fight that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... Still guy that's R rating. And yeah, like you said, this is pretty tame compared to everything else. This is, of course, right at the... Well, this is, I guess, when the horror slasher 80s stuff is starting to wrap up. It's 89 at this point. Like you said, almost 90. So, I mean, it's at this point, it's kind of like... Uh, I wouldn't say it's nearly as bad as Westerns or as bad as uh, superhero movies. But... Uh, just maybe an oversaturation of the exact same thing. You got Friday the Thirteenth, of course. Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm sure, is in, in this pot. Just repeats upon repeats of these exact same horror flicks that do pretty pretty much the same thing. And so, yeah, I mean, I do like that the original idea was to go above above and beyond than everybody else, which would have been a nice touch for this for this kind of genre. But it never made it anywhere, which is. I guess kind of sad, but at the same time, whatever, I guess. It's, uh, the idea is nice. Uh, too bad it didn't come to fruition. Well, and that kind of horror fatigue you're talking about, or just slasher fatigue, where it's really rote, nothing is new, it's just formulaic cookie cutter. A lot of audiences were feeling that way, and horror as a genre was pretty much dying, and this is getting close to the 90s. This was put out in 89, and it was really revived when Wes Craven put out Scream, which did take that formula and kind of made fun of it anyway, Mm -hmm. or it just turned it on its head, or it exposed it and gave it something really fresh by doing that, and... We won't get too much into that. That may be for a retrospective for another time. But you're right, because we are right on the brink right here in 89, where horror is severely going downhill. As you can see, audiences did not turn up for this movie. And I don't know, Friday the 13th was into like the sixth one by now, 
or something. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. There was a lot of horror fatigue, and that is why Scream was able to revive the horror franchise. Just a little bit of right. History and at the very least, Scream is just like, hey, you know how stupid we are? Because it it began to it began to show. It was very meta, and of course, like you said, that's a conversation for another time. But for right now, yes, there is quite a bit of horror fatigue. Every horror movie that's coming out is essentially the exact same thing as the other one. They're just uh, copy-paste at this point. And yeah, audiences are getting pretty annoyed. They really don't care to see the same thing again and again and again for 10 years. Well, listeners, we are about to get into spoiler territory for Halloween 5. If you haven't seen Halloween 5 and you don't want it spoiled for you, or if you would like to go back and listen to our other installments in the series before going any farther with Halloween 5, then I recommend just clicking pause right now, going and watching the movie, or checking out the recent installments in this retrospective series, and then coming back and press play, and we'll be here, right here, waiting for you. After the harrowing events of Halloween 4, where Michael was presumed dead and Jamie supposedly stabbed her stepmother to death on Halloween night, the film picks up one year later. But not before showing Michael climbed through a tunnel and into the river to escape the dynamite blast, which presumably killed him. Once on shore, Michael is healed by a hobo living in a shack. What? Oh. Just some, some random dude. <laughs> One year later, Jamie is in Haddonfield's Children's Hospital, where she is now mute and plagued by terrible nightmares of her slashing her stepmother, whom we later find out did not die. Michael, who has been in a coma with the hobo for the past year, awakens to seek out Jamie on Halloween. That day, Rachel, Jamie's older foster sister, is home alone when Michael breaks into the Carruthers' house and brutally murders her with scissors. But before this happens, Rachel is warned by Dr. Loomis, who believes Jamie to have psychic abilities that allow her to know when danger is around. Later that evening, Jamie has another episode when Rachel and Jamie's friend Tina is with Michael secretly posing as her boyfriend. Thankfully, thanks to Jamie's newfound ability to talk, Tina is rescued. Later on, Tina meets up with her friends at the Tower Barn Party. Jamie, being now telekinetically linked to Michael, races with her friend Billy to warn Tina she is still in danger. As to why Michael concocts an elaborate scheme of murdering Tina's boyfriend, stealing his car, picking her up to take her to the Tower Barn party, being foiled, then coming to the party to murder her friends and then her, and completely forget about Jamie until she goads him on to run her over, we don't know why. Anyways... Tina's friends are brutally slaughtered, and Tina herself nearly escapes death once more. But in doing so, she has set Michael on the trail of Jamie and Billy again. Jamie miraculously outruns Michael driving a muscle car, and once he does catch up to her, Tina tackles Michael and takes one in the clavicle bone, just like Rachel did, to save Jamie's life. Tina is now seemingly dead. Loomis magically appears to the exact location of Billy and Jamie to take them to safety. Seems to be a common theme here, too. Except (laughs) Loomis has a secret plan to lure Michael into a trap at Michael's childhood home, which looks nothing like his childhood home. Uh, 
Only there can Michael fight the rage within him, and Jamie can help him for some reason, but only at the house. Using Jamie as bait, the cops and SWAT teams secretly surround the house. Sheriff Meeker changes his mind and says he's moving Jamie to the station, because the station was really well protected in the last movie. But his attentions are pulled away when he hears the children's clinic is under attack. I, th I think. Under the impression she is going to the station, Jamie and fellow friendly cop protector prepare to leave when Loomis pulls a gun and says, not so fast. Now Michael will come, now that everyone is gone, save for Jamie. Once Michael arrives, he makes quick work of Loomis and the cop and Michael and Jamie play an intense game of cat and mouse, which ends with Jamie in the attic, lying in a prepared coffin, surrounded by candles and the bodies of Rachel, Tina's boyfriend, and Max the dog. Before Michael can land a death blow, Jamie cries, Uncle Boogeyman? And asking him to take his mask off. She realizes Michael is just like her, as a tear, as a tear rolls down his cheek. She reaches to wipe it, which puts him back in an insane slashing frenzy. Loomis reappears once again, using Jamie as bait to lure Michael into a chain trap where he is subdued. Finally, at the police station, all seems to be resolved as Michael fiddles with his chains awaiting the National Guard to come. As to why they let him keep the mask on, I don't know. As the National Guard comes to take him away to a maximum security prison. Before the guard can come, a mysterious man in black who shares the same wrist tattoo with Michael shoots up the station. Jamie, now all alone. Because who knows where Dr. Loomis went. The hospital? The savior is no longer here. <laughs> Jamie, now all alone, walks through the carnage of cops, only to find Michael has escaped captivity as credits roll. Uh, okay, well, I'm glad we went through this summary because there are a couple of points where I was just totally confused. The man in the boots was something that I was totally confused on. Uh, it sounds like we, even the plot summary, can't completely make sense of a lot of things here. Uh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I gotta say, in writing the plot summary, I realized how... Okay. While watching this movie, I noticed a lot of flaws with the script and then when writing the plot summary i was like wait a minute why is michael all of a sudden now all about getting tina and like seriously her boyfriend the, the jerk michael targets him he's watching him from across the road targets him takes him out steals his car pretends he's the boyfriend in a completely different mask aside from the halloween mask picks tina up He's going to take her to the Tower Barn Party, and when that fails, he still comes back to the Tower Barn Party instead of going to the children's hospital to get Jamie and to kill Tina. Well, once he can't find Tina, well, he does find her, and then she leaves. Then he settles for just killing her friends, and then he wants to kill her. That is totally crazy. Like, the movie just, the writer is like, oh, crap, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to change everything. 
It's it, okay. Change the motive. This is a very different Michael. He is also played by a different guy, too. We must probably yes. should bring that up as well. Different guy than before, but at the same time, his character is written like he only acts in the situation. Uh, like you said, friends in the barn, uh, he comes across Tina. Tina First, Tina's boyfriend, and then he comes across Tina. Uh, and I guess the only reason why is because Michael knows that Tina knows Jamie, but not sure why why anyways it seems like they had it almost feels like they had a completely different movie and then wrote michael into the situations just because uh yeah his character is so confusing in this story he goes back and forth following whoever it feels like they tried to make it like the original where uh you you of course have Whoever essentially whoever gets in the way of Michael uh, ends up dying, but in this case, Michael's pursuing them, which is very different. Right. Well, in the first movie, he did kill the main protagonist's friends, but he did that because it was kind of a trap. He was luring her into this house. Right. It, he wasn't just randomly targeting them. I guess you could make the case there was some random targeting and the second one clarifies the motives. But this one, I feel like they're maybe trying to go for that because first he goes for Rachel and then I guess he goes for Tina and he's trying to get her friends, but that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we're also getting back into the humanizing Michael trope from Halloween 2 where uh, we once again, he has his mask off. We At least in this one, we have a very brief glimpse of him with the hobo, and you yeah. see him with his mask off. And then like he that. has, yeah, he cries a bit later when he's with uh, Jamie. Once again, we're getting back into the humanizing of Michael, but it's not the same impact because in the second one, it was a bit more subtle, and it felt like it worked better when you integrated it into the story, doesn't work here at all. It just feels... I don't even know what this feels like here. It just feels out of place completely. Well, yeah, it's really frustrating because we see him without his mask fairly clearly in, I don't know, the first 10 to 15 minutes of the movie when he's with the hobo. Yeah. And I was like, what are you doing? No, you, you're you ruining the illusion. And then at the end, he's crying I'm sorry, it doesn't make any sense at all. This feels totally disconnected from the first movie. Plus, in the first one, he was blonde. Like, his mask was ripped off very briefly. And it really worked. It was shocking because John Carpenter was supposed to trying to make him look like this innocent, angelic, young, very young man. He would have been 21. In this, he's like 35 or something, and he has black hair and... It doesn't work at yeah. all. It, the, whatever the, the implementation of uh, humanizing Michael in the second one, whether you liked it or not, I, it works so much better there than it does here. And this one, it feels like they're just grabbing for straws. I, I can't even think of a reason. I guess maybe they feel it'd be scarier if they did this with Michael, but I can't even agree with that because it doesn't do anything at all. It's just an added element that could have, should have been removed completely. I guess I can understand the ending where he does cry because of JB. But even that, that's pushing it. Well, well, yeah, but then he starts slashing around and I don't get it. And uh, 
I do feel like Dr. Loomis knows something we don't know throughout this movie. Yeah. Because Dr. Loomis is like, you have to fight the rage within you. You know Jamie is the only one that can quell this rage within you. You have to come back to your house where it all began. And I understand he's trying to draw back to the first one where he murdered his sister, sister, sister in 68. Right. Uh, but, or whatever year it was, uh, it... I, I don't know. I think this was a very weird choice because it's not emotionally earned whatsoever. But I really want to know what you think of the retcon because the whole beginning of this movie is a retcon of number four. Yeah. Yeah. And the retcon confused me. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, he... So he escapes. So, okay, we, we come to find out Michael actually isn't dead. Uh, he just crawled away once he got down into that mine shaft, I guess is what it was. And he found his way out. And so the only reason why Jamie killed her, whoever in the fourth one is because Michael at this point can half control her or something every once in a while, whenever he goes into this rage, except at the very end when he doesn't, um, this this was a very confusing retcon because I thought that they had come okay originally when they showed uh, Jamie having the flashbacks of her uh, stabbing I think it was her stepmom or whatever uh, or adoptive mother from the fourth one uh, I thought that was saying that the fourth movie is all a dream and it even had the title of one year earlier and I was like okay so we're just removing the fourth one completely from the story but then it kept harkening back so when that happened i was like okay so maybe not at first it was confusing i eventually picked it up but it's like it it wasn't very clear on what it was trying to say and it was very confusing for me i can see how that would be confusing because especially watching them in such close proximity i think they're hoping the audience won't remember, but it's weird because we never actually saw the stabbing in the fourth one. In this movie, we do see the flashback, and we actually get to see the stabbing, which is very reminiscent of the stabbing in the first movie. Oh, yeah. The beginning of the they're movie. basically the same thing. Right. They're essentially the same thing. I am, I- I'm fine with Michael crawling away and floating down the river and I guess being nursed back to health. I think this hobo living in like this mud hut is ridiculous. But I yeah. am very not okay with them setting – like, to me, they made a point of showing the entirety of the end of the fourth where Michael gets run over and Jamie touches him and he gets shot. So when Jamie touches him, they make that a prominent note again. I'm thinking the evil has somehow passed from uncle to niece, and that is why she has stabbed her mom. Well, in this one, we come to find out she is she can't talk. I don't even understand that. I did hear a fan theory that said because Michael doesn't talk, neither does Jamie. Okay. I, that makes a lot more sense to me. Wikipedia said psychological trauma. And I guess that could be possible as well. But to me, it they're just setting up a false ending. And yeah. they're not going with the idea. I find that to be really frustrating. And it doesn't make any sense because nor do we ever get any glimpse in this movie of Jamie having any evil tendencies. 
Right. She has moments where Michael control controls her, air quotes. I I can't even begin to explain what this movie is trying to show. Uh, every time Michael goes into this trance, she also goes into this trance. Uh, but it doesn't do anything. It's just there because? Uh, it's... I don't know. I can't even put to words what this is even trying to say when this situation happens for because script essentially right the movie never explains clearly they have some kind of psychic telekinetic whatever you want to call it link it doesn't explain that at all i do think we might get an explanation in the sixth one but i don't like movies that make you come back to the sequel to get the full story. I think that is just a cash grab and lazy writing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of a reason why this is even here. Other than the fact that, yes, they have a connection, uh, Michael and, uh, Jamie, Jamie. Yeah. That's her name. (laughs) They have a connection. That's clear. And I understand that. I just don't understand why the rest of us is here in the first place. I would just... I That seems to be a common thing, too. This movie is just not like... Just doesn't like to explain things. And just kind of does it. Big, big thing is with Michael. Because he just does things... Because every time something crosses his path, he takes it whether or not it's actually a good idea, which is why the ending of this part one of the ending of this, when he's driving with the car makes no sense to me because of Michael. Um, It it seems like, it seems like they've created a situation, the script writers, they've created a situation and the way to get out of the situation, they take the first idea that the cup that pops into their head. And that makes for a very disjointed, uneven script, just all the way around the table. Yeah. I think they're basically, well, we're out of ideas. Maybe having a little girl be a, a murderer is far too dark. Uh, we can't, they cannot bring Michael back for one movie, The Return of Michael Myers, and then not bring him back for the sequel. That right. they would totally lose all of their fan base because they tried it with three. If they, if they did that, that wouldn't work. So I can see why they did that. But Daniel Harris is like, maybe I'll be a sidekick. Maybe it'll be me for a while and then he'll come back. I don't know. There are so much better ideas that little girl had with this movie than the actual writers of this movie. Right. And here's the funny thing. This feels a lot like four. Like, it seems like they took pieces of two and a lot of four and then stuck them together and said, bam, Halloween five is all perfect. Revenge of (laughs) Michael Myers. I will say that it, it looks a lot like four. Like, the look of this movie, like, they look identical. Oh, it's yeah. It's really kind of Absolutely. weird how they did that. Uh, four was pretty much a remake, a little bit of a revamp of number one. And this movie isn't really original. I think it actually has some very cheesy ideas, like we're talking about right now. But I do feel like it is trying to be its own thing with some of this stuff. And maybe explore some things, albeit not very well and not satisfactorily, than the previous installments. I, I 
I remember enjoying this movie and liking it. I'm still going to save my thoughts. We're nowhere near done talking with it. Yeah. But I will say this is fairly original, whereas, honestly, I'm going to say it's more original than the one before it. I would half agree with that. At the very least, more happens in this movie than what happened in 4. Uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I found this one, I'm, it's a stretch to say that it's entertaining, but there are, there's more that happens. There are more events that occur in five than what happened in four. Part of that is due to, because we have newer characters now, uh, a lot, a couple more characters than we did that are given more light than, than four did. Just a lot more events happen in this one than in 4. I can't say that it's more original than 4 because it just feels like all they did was just add this one small element of Michael is connected to Jamie and everything else kind of feels the same. Both in terms of aesthetic and in terms of how the script and events move along. It... It, once again, we've for a movie that was supposed to be uh, a movie that was supposed that was meant to be something very very different. It feels like we're just getting the exact same thing again, at least in my mind. So before we go too far, I do want to know your thoughts on the opening credit sequence because that was very famous in Halloween One. I felt like they upped it. They did really great in Halloween Two. Halloween Three was the digital pumpkin. Halloween Four completely ditched the pumpkin formula and was just creepy rural farm shots right which i liked i think it could have been better this movie is lots of slashing like slashing up pumpkins what did you think of that at first i well, at first i didn't know there were pumpkins for the first uh few seconds uh and i was just like ah yes uh the basic a uh, horror opening just the Red text on the black background. Halloween 5, you know. Uh, Then we get the slashing of the pumpkins. And I was like, okay. I think it's better than 4. The opening of this is kind of harkening back to the original. But it's still keeping it new. So I did enjoy that aspect of it. Uh, But it sets a very different tone for the rest of the movie. Because it kind of feels like it's meant to be some really big slasher. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of kills. There's gonna be it's gonna be paced much quicker. Not necessarily. The music I did feel was pretty good at setting the tone, regardless of what was being shown on screen. However, uh, so it, I if this was in four, I think it would work, it would have worked a lot better because we kind of get a pumpkin, but not to the very end of the open of the of the opening credits. Right, I would agree with that. I found the music to be ominous. I like how we're just kind of jumping in there. I do like the cuts. It's different and exciting. Uh, They interlaced the original theme. It does work, but at the same time, I also feel it's kind of meh. You know, kudos to them for doing something different, but still using, but still coming back to the pumpkin formula. But anyways, uh, what do you think of uh, Alan Hayworth's score here? Like I think throughout I, the movie. Yeah, 
I think I mentioned this exact same thing in 4. There are times where they kind of remix the original theme in a way that I enjoyed. Uh, there are times where they kind of use that motif and mess with it, where instead of ending on a high note, they end on a different chord. Uh, small things like that. It's it's kind of the same here. Just it feels like we've been just been doing the same thing again. They used the original theme a lot more now than they did in four. I will, I do note that. Uh, but for the most part. It's it's okay, I suppose. Aside from the original theme, there is nothing else that's new here in terms of any kind of motif or anything like that. I yeah, I, I feel the same way. I I I think he doesn't do it, it's really nothing to advance the scoring of the movie. Yeah. It's fairly well done. There is some choices later on that are weird, but we'll get to those in a little bit. Yeah. So following Halloween tradition, it seems like there is always a new person. There's always a new man playing Michael, and there's always a new mask. They can't ever seem to get the original William Shatner mask. Right. <laughs> what do you think of this new mask? It looks totally different from the mask in number four, even though it is supposed to be the same mask. Yeah. Oh, this is a much better mask than whatever was in four. Uh, this feels this feels closer to the original mask than I would say anything else that we've seen so far. Three doesn't count; it doesn't have Michael at all. Um, yeah, I do enjoy this mask like a lot. It feels because it's not because the problem I had with four, I think we both have this issue. It felt too plain, like it was just like a white sheet over Michael, and it almost was laughable because it kind of clashed with his with his outfit this one is a bit more dirty and it kind of has dirt in the uh, crevices and stuff like that it feels a bit more realistic while still keeping that great ambiguity of the shape so i i did really enjoy this mask uh of course not as great as the original but it feels the closest that we've seen so far which i did enjoy so uh, that's at least a good thing I, that i can note this one was very pointed and which I think gave it more of an expression to it mm -hmm. while still remaining ambiguous, but it did seem more menacing. The one in number four was extremely plain and featureless, too much so. Yeah. It and felt too I, clean. Yeah, we agreed. Yeah, and the original mask is still the best. I'm really hoping this new movie we're getting this year will be it really can't be that hard to make remake the mask but somehow it's always been extremely difficult for them to figure out there at the props department i right. guess right. anyways i think they are doing a lot of things right they are building off what the fourth one did the fourth was kind of a bit of a reboot and a bit of a remake i think they're trying their best to introduce new elements bring back a similar mask bring back more of a similar score because they will reuse a couple of the same uh, themes from the first movie. And I was really glad to hear those back. They didn't use it as much. None of these movies are going to come anywhere near John Carpenter's score that he did himself in the first movie. Uh, they're, they're still pretty good. I want to know what you thought of Michael floating down the river. Like he's on a lazy river. I uh, put in my notes uh myers goes whitewater rafting when yeah. that scene came up uh it's pretty funny 
uh, just to kind of see him floating along the river as it goes down, as he goes downstream. Uh, it's just kind of funny just to see that. It doesn't feel Halloween at all. It almost feels something like Scream would do or something that maybe even Cabin in the Woods would do, just making fun of itself. Uh, small detail, but it is just really silly. I do feel like this movie is quite a bit different from the other ones because the other ones really took their time, I felt, to build up, whereas this one is just jumping right in there. Right. And in that way, I do feel like it works more so as a connector with number four. And we did talk about this with Halloween 2, where Halloween 2 is writing the coattails, like literally the climax storyline, everything from Halloween 1. Like, you need to watch Halloween 1 and then 2 if you're going to watch 2. Right. And in a way, I sort of feel it feel like that with this movie if you're gonna watch five then you probably should watch four relatively close but in a way i feel like five still stands alone but like i was saying this movie starts very different it i think it's using much more visual storytelling with not much dialogue or setup because we already know the story so we don't need setup whereas number four was stupid exposition heavy yeah i absolutely agree with that they're really they're beginning to hammer down more on the visual storytelling side, uh, which I did enjoy. This is one part of it that I did like. Keeping the same light of that, there I did note this. There are a lot of shots, especially in the opening 40-ish minutes, where Michael is shown in the background, uh, but he is not acknowledged at all by the movie. Like He's just kind of there standing. And even though it may not work at times, it was a small detail that I really enjoyed because we never really got that before. Usually in the previous ones, if, he, if Michael was in the background, it, the movie would make note that, hey, he's in the background, you know. Whereas in this one... He was there was a there's a scene where he's like behind a tree. You can make out that he's there, but there's things happening on the foreground that essentially feels as if it's almost not acknowledged, but it totally is. And you know that he's there as an audience member because you can see him. That was a small detail that I really enjoyed. I can't say that the cinematography is very good, but it feels like there was some thought going into more of the visual side than what was ever in 4, which I did enjoy. Unfortunately, some of the shots are out of focus, and that's a that's a big minus, but it was interesting to see this, and I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. They did do a good job of trying to imitate some of the style of the first one, where it would be some kind of over-the-shoulder shot or... Some mid-level shot of Michael where you don't really see his face, but you can hear his breathing. He's watching the townspeople or certain characters that will factor in later on. So yeah, they, they did do a good job of that, I would agree. I gotta say, I really am not happy Donald Pleasance, Dr. Loomis, is back in this movie. He's just hanging around like a bad disease. It is ridiculous. Yeah, his entrance is hilarious because he just shows up out of nowhere and begins to give the doctor's instructions. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and that's like a normal thing. This happens more than once. He just kind of shows up somewhere for no reason at all. Uh, just because the script needs him for that moment, except sometimes when it doesn't, uh, I his character in this, he's gotten a lot worse. 
his character is just kind of slowly degrading um, into something that just doesn't need even need to be here. It feels like it, I feel like this would have been much scarier if uh, Jamie had to do it completely alone and Loomis just wasn't there. I agree. Loomis is horrible. I I don't like how he is. He just berates Jamie. He gets in her face in really inappropriate ways. Very scary. Very intimidating. I guess he just has free reign to hang around her and just constantly scare her. I think Jamie's nurse is a weirdo as well. Yeah. This we've just got a cast of weirdos in this movie, and especially their friend Tina. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Don't get me started on Tina. Yeah, there is a level of teen angst that I've never seen before, I don't think. It feels like the writers, this is how, say, think that this is how teenagers act. Uh, that could not be farther from the truth, if you ask me. I mean, I get th that they're kind of portraying this in a very hyperbolic sense, but... <laughs> I have never known anybody who acts the way that anybody, any teenager in this movie does. I put in my notes, who is this girlfriend, question mark, question mark, best friend, apparently. Stupid, annoying teenage girl, which I hate. She needs to, all caps, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Why? I can't even begin to describe. I don't even know why she becomes the main character or main side character i suppose uh why they didn't keep rachel i don't i don't know uh, I, I, I i think that was the wrong choice it should have been tina who got taken out first because yes. we already had a relationship with rachel from number four so it would have been much more poignant for Rachel to be doing all this, I was shocked they took out Rachel so fast in this movie. I know. I don't know why they didn't just stay with Rachel. There's no reason to kill her. There, there isn't. I mean, if they killed Tina, that's fine. And then they killed Rachel later on, that's also fine. But there's no reason for Tina to be the main character. She's annoying. And Rachel feels a bit more... It's very tame compared to her, which is very nice, but... She's just annoying. She's not even fun to be around that Tina isn't. Clearly, this movie is teasing that Michael is going to take on Max the dog eventually because right. in the first one, he did the same thing. But I'm really drawing a blank now. Do we ever see Michael kill Max? Because in the end, we see Max a really bad, I don't know what it is, some paper mache looking thing yeah. hanging from the ceiling. That of sounds about right. <laughs> but do we ever get a scene where he goes back and gets revenge on Max? I don't even know why he would do that. I don't think we ever do. Uh, <laughs> we, I do know that Max at one point escapes and they find him a little bit later uh, when we get that tease of Michael entering the house. But we know we never really see Michael take on the dog and attack the dog at all i guess it's just it's just implied that he and when he maybe when um maybe when tina returned to the house maybe that's when he decided to take on the dog i don't know they never really show it he just shows up in the end for whatever reason uh okay i gotta say i'm a little surprised that we're only 15 minutes into the movie and we're getting 
kind of some quasi-nudity here, because we see Rachel blurred through the shower. Uh, you still see some stuff, but that's really surprising, because in the last movie, Rachel was the, quote, prude, I guess you could say, who wouldn't put out. She was the conservative girl looking for a husband, whereas the other girl was, she was the Laurie Strode character, essentially, in the yeah. last movie. Right. Well, not anymore. She is, you know, Miss Makeup, Miss Doing Her Hair, you know, putting on clothes with just underwear on. I don't know. I I gotta say, I the reason I think they are giving the audience a little bit of nudity, kind of teasing them a little bit, is because they know all the other horror movies have done this. They gotta up the stakes, and they've gotta keep people in their seats. They gotta keep them staying here. So that's why I think that's why it's like this yeah this tease is pretty hardcore here at the beginning (laughs) later and then eventually get eventually it shows something but yeah this is they do tease this and it's only like the first 10 minutes too so it's yeah they really try they really hold your interest for a while if that was their intention i guess it it's weird because then she runs out in a towel and meets her neighbor because dr loomis tells her to that was, yeah. Well, she's laying on the bed completely wet. Yeah. Yeah. And talking on the phone. She doesn't even, it's like she literally just stepped out of the shower, didn't even try to drive herself off. Right. I gotta say, that neighbor guy deserves a Razzie. When she rounds the corner, he just stands up with the most blank expression and just like puts his arm on her. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And then right after that, we get Tweedledee and Tweedledum. These- oh my gosh. Okay, I'm not even kidding you right now. <laughs> when we are first introduced to these two cops and that god-awful score plays in the background, I almost shut it off. <laughs> I am not even kidding. I pause it. This is an, I pause it and I said, okay, <sighs> all right. I came very, very close. I came very, very close. I couldn't believe it. It is this goofy squeaking sound when these two officers are walking. And I was like, this is the most radical tone shift in cinema history. I have never seen something so ridiculous in my entire life. Not only is it just, like you said, a very big tone shift that is probably one of the most abrupt that we, that I've ever seen, but it's, it, there's no reason for it. There's just no reason for it to even exist because, yes, okay, fine. These two are they are idiots. But they're, at no point in the Halloween series have we ever really needed this level of comic relief. There's, there's no reason for it. Not even in Halloween's sake, there's no reason for there to be this kind of comic relief that continuously comes back for some reason. That was the reason why I almost shut it off because it was just like, what movie am I seeing? This isn't Halloween anymore at this point. This is, what even is this? It feels like this is a trope for trope's sake. I don't have confirmation, but apparently this is supposed to pay homage to Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. Listeners, if you have seen that movie and you can confirm what they do with the noise effects with the cops here and in Last House on the Left, please comment below and let us know because I'm interested. But this is re- this is weird. This is crazy. I couldn't believe it because we go from Michael 
stalking her in her house, which I actually found that aspect of him in the house, watching her, moving around, to be frightening. And I do find it frightening when she's trying to get clothes in her closet and he's watching her. Now, she would clearly see him. That's unbelievable. But nevertheless, I do find it to be pretty frightening. And I actually found the lighting to be very good when he comes out from behind the door and she's in the bedroom with, you know, the lights coming in, the natural lights coming in. I got to say, it's very well lit. That that scene's actually very well executed. Yeah, yeah. This is finally, finally, we get the first kill. It takes him forever to get here. But like the teasing of the nudity, we're also kind of teasing with the kills as well with Michael. Finally, we get something... I wish it was something a bit more creative than just scissors, but hey, it's finally something, you know. Well, I don't understand what they're trying to do with this new Michael, because in the last movie, he used chains and axe, and he used a variety of weapons, and only towards the very end, I think it was with the rooftop chase or something, did he somehow get a butcher knife, which is his signature weapon, in this, he kind of does the same thing. We see first kills with scissors, and then later in the barn, he uses a big scythe, and later he does get a knife, but I I think they're just trying to switch it up. It's, yeah, it's I mean, and I get that too, but it just kind of feels like they don't know what else Michael could use that's considered to be threatening, so they're just kind of going back to the basics, and yeah, we get to the barn where it feels like the scene was only written just so Michael could use the tools in the barn, like the scythe and stuff like that. But yeah, I think they might be running out of ideas as to, okay, well, what else could Michael use to kill somebody with? Like, quickly. Not like just hit him over the head with something. Yeah. We're running out of ideas here pretty quick with what Michael can use in the environment, which is... It makes the kills not as engaging anymore. I do gotta say, right before Rachel's death, I do think it's a nice character moment when she is getting dressed and she kind of checks herself out in the mirror. That does seem very realistic. She did bring some humanity to that character, relatable aspect to it. So I did like that, but I gotta say, I'm really disappointed that Rachel is taken out this fast. I just don't even get it. And then unfortunately, she's replaced with Tina. I know, and Tina's horrible. Okay, and we it, this scene is important because Michael comes back to the house he knows Jamie was staying in, the Carruthers' house, and he finds a photo of Jamie and he smashes it with his hand. We don't see him do this, but we just see the smashed photo with the blood on it. Right. Th- like I said, this scene is well done, but this clearly establishes Michael's motive on Halloween, there, tell he goes into a coma for a year, and then he reawakens on Halloween to find Jamie. That's why he goes to the house. That's why he smashes the photo. But then, after this, his attention is totally diverted to Tina for the second act of the movie until it comes back to Jamie in the third. It doesn't make any sense. It's the movie's breaking its own setup. Right. I mean, we I think we mentioned this before in the pod before, but I think the reason why is because Michael's motive is to get to Tina's or no, sorry, to get to Jamie, but to get to Jamie, he has to also go through Tina, but who to get to Tina, he also has to go through Michael, uh, her boyfriend, 
but to get there, he also has to go through it. It feels like, okay, yes, this worked in the original because they were right across the street from one another, the, the two girls. Uh, it doesn't work here because we don't know these characters and where they are, how they are related. Uh, but more importantly, we it it feels like Michael's going way out of his way to do something seemingly insignificant when he could just go looking for her or find out somewhere in the house that Jamie used to live in that, hey, she's actually at the children's clinic. It feels like we're just going way out of our way just for the sake of making the movie longer. Oh, that's the exact reason. They just want to lengthen the runtime. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of things in here that are useless and are just made for lengthening the runtime just in general. The only time I jumped during this movie is when Tina was weirdly laying on the bed and somehow Rachel is now gone. And the doorbell rings that I actually jumped. That was like the only time. Oh, yeah. Speaking of jump scares, there are a lot of them here and there are a lot of fake outs. Yeah. But they're not even like good jump scares. They're just there uh, because it's a, it feels like it's an obligation for, because it's a horror movie. Uh, there are t- tons of them. They don't work at all. None of them do. None of them worked for me, at least. I don't know if you've seen Last Man Standing, but the daughter Mandy on the show, her and Tina look so similar. I thought they had to be related, but I don't think they are. Something to look into, though, listeners. Tell me if you think Tina in this movie and uh, Mandy in Last Man Standing look similar. I want to know. Okay, something else I I will commend the movie on is when these two girls, which are Rachel's friends, I don't know where she got these friends from at all because she didn't really have any friends in the fourth movie. They're talking about having sex with a boyfriend or whatever, and the music during the background in this scene reminds me of David Lynch's TV series Twin Peaks, which is a compliment. I felt like they actually did that very well. The funny thing is Twin Peaks hadn't come out yet. And ah, ah, we see where Twin Peaks got it. Haha. Uh-huh, David Lynch, secret <laughs> Halloween five fan. <laughs> couldn't scoot it past us. Thought he could, but he couldn't. I gotta say, so I was like, okay, that that gives me good vibes. And I gotta say, the Tina's boyfriend Michael, which is confusing because Michael's also the killer in this movie. Yeah. He reminds me of Bobby from Twin Peaks. So I was really like, oh man, this movie is just ripping off Twin Peaks until I find out Twin Peaks came out just a couple years later. So this movie is very reminiscent of Twin Peaks for you. Only this scene. Only this scene. Otherwise, no. Twin Peaks is vastly superior in every way. Anyways, this boyfriend, Michael, is a freak, and he's not cool. He's lame. He's so moody. Yeah. He just gets mad for no reason at every scene that he's in. And so when he (laughs) dies, it's just like, oh. Finally, someone decided to do something about this. His death was hilarious because he, when Michael grabs him by the throat and his face is just so funny as he is slowly mm-hmm. being choked and falling down. It's, it's, it's funny. Yeah, it, it is kind of funny too because the way that Michael gets to him is he keys, uh, keys his car with whatever weapon he has and that just sets him off. If we haven't seen him mad before, he's super mad now means nothing to Michael. He just takes the whatever weapon he has and just stabs him in his head. That's it. He's gone after that. That's how he gets the car. Uh, oh, Michael with a car. 
Uh, we will, okay, this has been done before, but now he uses it as like a main weapon now. It, it doesn't work. I got some things to say about that in just a little bit. But it, I got to say, it is kind of out of character because Michael purposefully keying somebody's car because he knows it'll tick them off and he'll be able to take them out that way. That's a weird character motivation that we've yeah. never seen from Michael before. It really yeah. downgrades his character, I think. Right. So there is one detail I kind of do want to touch on. Okay. There is a lot of sexual dialogue in this movie. Yes. Um, we get it at one point. I think the first time it shows up is when, I think when Tina's talking to Rachel, actually. Uh, no, 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 no. It's when she's talking to her other friend. I forget her name, but she dies later with her boyfriend. Whatever his name is. He's crazy. He laughs a lot. He also I hate his Mask. character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him. Uh, so we bring in the point where she asks him, she asks him, she asks her some question. Anyways, the friend says, oh yeah, I think tonight's tonight. And so yeah. she begins to talk about satin sheets and leopard stuff. And it's like, and this is one point. And then it just, a bunch of this kind of just comes up out of nowhere. It feels like the script writers once again feel like, okay, this is how teens really act. And that's <laughs> what they base it off of when, once again, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Well, I do feel like we saw they're just pandering to the teenage audience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we saw this most recently in Truth or Dare, where half of the dares consisted of something sexual, you know, right. and some very giddy, silly, immature thing where it, it, it's like, really, that's what you wanted to happen? No, that's what you just want. You think the teenagers want to see. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I don't think this movie knows its target audience very well. Any sexual dialogue in the first movie was very discreet and it wasn't touched on very much. Right. It, it felt like it fit the situation whatever, whenever it was there. Right. It seemed like a real conversation between three high school girls. This is just fairly corny. I gotta say the first one is more sexual they do show a lot more in the first movie than this one but you can see they're really trying to go for that here and it doesn't work especially when we get in the barn later it's just weird yeah it goes on for too long this is another one of those scenes where it just goes on for too long and doesn't need to go on for this long uh there's a lot of these here there's just time wasted well, we can go ahead and talk about the barn sequence because the barn sequence is a solid 10 minutes or more. I know. It's so long. Like, this is, okay, not only is this a huge barn because we have characters at different points and they can't even hear each other. <laughs> there are also cats for some reason in this barn and Tons we like to talk about the cats a lot <laughs> because reasons. Uh, Michael enters at one point... And takes forever to do stuff. Um, not till the other two, the other couple, get the groove on, and then it's too late later on. This scene is bizarre, just because of how much time they take to get from one point to the next. It is really long, and I find it really weird because Tina does see a shape with a scythe walking towards her. 
and she gets scared, she gets spooked out, she runs away, and then she keeps calling to her friends like, I'm leaving, not even warning them that right. something very frightening may be going on there. And, gosh, yes, the build-up to this really bizarre sex scene where they're mostly clothed, which I'm fine with because I don't need to see that. Right. It's very awkward. It's very weird. Okay, and I gotta say... There's this shot where Michael is kind of peeking at them through the slats, and he's, like, rubbing his hand across the wood. And then he picks up the weapon. I was like, what are you doing? What kind of... What? The only thing I can try and help explain is because they want to draw out the scene more? I don't know. I I honestly don't know. This barn scene... At this point, I was struggling to pay attention because there is so much time that was... Everything is just so drawn out, uh, especially in this scene, uh, just to fill the hour and a half runtime that I was I was dying. I was just like, can we just, can we just move on with it, please? I was feeling the same way. I put in my notes during the barn sequence. I'm just wanting this movie to be over at this point. 53 minutes in feels like this movie is taking forever to go anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And we still have another climax after this. Two of them, actually. Oh, yeah. <sighs> At least they have something going on. But still, there is a half an hour left of this of this movie. No, more than that. An hour, almost 50, 40 minutes worth of oh, movies yes. still to go. I said the cat is very cute. Best part of the movie. <laughs> I will say this. I did like how... The way that Tina finds that her friends are dead is by the cat having bloods put on it. Yeah, that I felt was pretty a pretty cool idea. But that's all, <laughs> right? I yeah, and okay, I did think the cops were kind of funny in this scene, where they're like, "No respect for authority. Somebody could get hurt. It's the parents," and I did find it weird because clearly they're completely different ages but the older one says we didn't do that stuff when we were kids oh yeah clearly different ages well there's something right. i want to go back and talk about just a little bit i do also want to commend one more scene where jamie sees michael out the window kind of like her mom did in the first movie and then she starts running down the stairs and the shadow is coming up to the front door I actually found found that imagery to be quite effective, and then when her when she is running down the stairs and running away, I found that to be an, an effective macabre scene. Yeah, I just want to know how come they didn't do more stuff like that in this movie instead of maybe physically showing that uh, Michael and Tina have this connection where she kind of goes into this trance. We have things like this that happen where it's more visual and more ambiguous as to what is happening between her and Michael, I feel like that would have been miles more engaging. Well, this movie, it's very unbalanced between... Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's really great at showing and not telling. Sometimes it tells way too much. Sometimes it is very creepy, and then sometimes it's very cheesy. This movie is all over the place. Yeah. Oh, it, it absolutely is all over the place. We spend... Okay, the first half an hour is only... For the first half an hour, we only cut between two places, and that's the children's hospital or the children's clinic and Rachel's house. Those are the only two places for the first half an hour that we 
ever go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So at first I was like, okay, please don't pull number four where we just don't go anywhere. Yeah. Luckily, more things happened after that first half an hour. But there, there's a so much. This movie is so uneven, unevenly paced, uneven dialogue. It just feels like they had pulled so much. Uh, no, it feels like they really, really, really tried to get this to be an hour and a half. And because of this, things are so drawn out and that it eventually just defaulted. And now it's uneven and unbalanced and pacing is everywhere. I put this movie goes from no story with not really characters, death right away to now a story with characters. It feels like a different movie. Yeah, it uneven. Everything is just uneven here. I also got to we also should comment that this movie introduces a brand new character that they're clearly setting up. They're teasing for a future sequel. Feels very Marvel in that aspect almost. This man in black, he's kind of a cowboy in black. Yeah, who is this guy? Why is he here? Is he going to be I guess he's going to be explained later, but for this entire movie, every okay, at one point I thought it was Michael because of the tattoo that he had on his uh wrist. Yeah. So I was thinking, okay, Michael, why is he in boots that make <laughs> noises when he when he walks? <laughs> I was just confused. I thought it was Michael and then come to find out later, no, it's not Michael at all. I found this out in the very last scene. This guy doesn't do anything except for the very end of the movie, he breaks Michael out of jail. That's the only thing he ever does. And he's shown multiple times going to places where Michael's at or in the aftermath or all sorts of stuff like that. He feels very, no, not feels, he is so weird to be in this movie. Yeah, I agree. You do notice that now all of a sudden they're calling attention that Michael has a tattoo. We're supposed to believe Michael has this symbol tattoo on his wrist. He's always had it. And this man in black has it as well. I do believe this man in black is coming to prepare certain things because we do see him in the Myers house while Dr. Loomis is in the house and the guy has a bag. As to why Dr. Loomis can't hear this guy walking around the house because he's super loud with the shoes. I don't know, I guess because he's old. But anyways, I do believe we see the coffin and all the people on all the dead things and candles at the end. Very weird. It doesn't make any sense. I'm pretty sure that man in black came and set that up. So he's setting things up. Yeah, I guess I can push myself to believe that the movie just doesn't show it. And for a movie that likes to explain a lot, it that's one element that I just I didn't even think about. Well, but yeah, honestly, if you wrote if he was written complete out of this movie. He, there would be nothing changed except the fact that Michael escaped right in the very end, which I would have believed would have happened anyways later on if he were to be put in jail. But regardless, well, did you? Okay, could you believe how one hundred percent different Michael's house is? <sighs> yeah, it looked different. I mean, we haven't really been there for a few movies. We've kind of seen the exterior. Uh. But yeah, it looks... Were there always this many trees in the front of the yard? No. It's it's a third-story house now with a spiral castle shape on the front of it. It is totally different. Like, if you look at the house from the first movie and even the second, and maybe they show it in the fourth, I can't remember. I don't... It's crazy different. It's just shocking. And 
they were like, we can't find a house like it. So we wanted to go for some like Victorian style house. And right. Just, what? Although there is one element that I kind of enjoyed here at like the final climax between Michael and Jamie. Uh, so Jamie essentially, she searches the entire house. Well, not searches, but she goes through the entire house, uh, essentially. Uh, it almost feels like we're exploring the deepest reaches of Michael's mind at this point. Because she goes not like all over the place. We begin at the bedroom uh, upstairs, and then she eventually gets her way into the basement where she crawls down through the chute uh, and then goes back upstairs into the attic where we see the, uh, the coffin and all the kills that Michael has done for at least this movie. It feels kind of like we're exploring the deeper reaches, uh, the deeper crevices of Michael's mind at this point. I don't know if the movie is actually, actually going for that, but that's kind of what I got out of it. And I enjoyed it in that aspect. But once again, I don't even know if, the script writers were meaning for that to happen. I think that's a nice thought, but you're probably right. The script writers aren't that deep. Yeah. I guess the one thing that I could make a connection with is how big and empty the house is. And I think that could be a parallel to Michael's mind. He seems just empty. Yeah. He's always seemed very blank, empty, nothing there and i okay i gotta say i do love the house i think the house super creepy it looks great Uh, i think it's really well utilized i mean as for some technical aspects it doesn't really work because when loomis and michael are having their conversation it is super bright outside through those windows and somehow jamie somehow michael can't stab her through the the shaft, which doesn't make any sense. Stabbing the exact same spot <laughs> like 50 times and he hopes that, oh, that'll get her. Somehow she made it from the basement to like the first or second floor in no time at all. And some of that doesn't really work, but yeah. I would agree this, I think the, this like climax in the house is probably the best part of the movie. I would agree with that. This is definitely, at the very least, one of the better parts of the movie. Because finally we get Michael and Jamie to coming head-to-head, uh, essentially hero and villain. Uh, Loomis, who is really meant to be... As, since, as Michael is the embodiment of evil, Loomis is the embodiment of all good. So there is one moment that I did also kind of like when Loomis dies... And kind of falls on top of Michael. And it, oh, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's like good and evil are staring each other in the face. Yeah. Uh, I Once again, I don't even know if that's what the scriptwriters were going for, maybe at this point. But anyways, yes, I, I did enjoy this part because it, it felt like there were some serious stakes. Uh, because Michael felt like he really did want to kill uh, Jamie and that was even there were moments there was one or two moments where I felt okay this is actually quite uncomfortable because that that's exactly how the movie wanted me to feel because Michael was fa- was trying was chasing down this little girl and trying to kill her it was very uncomfortable at moments and I have to commend it for that at the very least I do want to talk a little bit about some of the te- technical aspects of this movie 
I think the editing is fairly not... I think the editing is bad. No, it's bad. <laughs> there is some really terrible editing, actually, where sometimes the voices won't match with the lips. Like when Tina oh. is talking in the car. Multiple times. Yeah, there's like a couple double shots where like they missed the edit instead of making it a clean edit it that goes back a scene um i'm trying to think what else i can name one example uh i think it's actually when michael the boyfriend uh is attacked by michael the shape uh he falls on the ground and there's like this jump cut when he hits the ground uh and whatever happens after that happens but yeah i noticed that i was like okay and then yes once you said that adr is just so bad either doesn't match up very blatant or just doesn't even they're not even saying like their mouth isn't even moving but there's audio happening that happens a couple times too it's all over the place i okay also before tina gets in the car before michael unlocks it there is another jump cut and it's really jarring i'm I'm like oh my gosh who edited this movie it's really bad why didn't they just reshoot it So, I gotta say, I'm a little confused if this is a kid's movie or not, actually. Because we spend a lot of time with the kids. We spend a l- between Jamie and her friend Billy, which I can't stand him. Oh, dear. Uh, I, I will <laughs> say it's different because most R movies don't spend this much time with kids. Because adult audiences aren't going to be able to relate unless they think of their own kids. Right. But using a using like a child protagonist in an R-rated movie and bringing in a couple friends. I don't think we've seen this very often. Yeah, not to my knowledge. I think the reason why we spend so much time here is this, and this happens later on too in the climax. We are built to believe that Michael is going to eventually get to the clinic. And not only is Jamie there, but there are other kids there as well, which now potentially could be in harm. So I think that was the whole reason for the clinic and why we spend so much time there. But I do agree with you. Not only do we spend a lot of time in this clinic, but Loomis is always here. And if he wasn't weird from (laughs) from his introductory scene, he's weird every time we see him because... He is always here. And the movie actually does bring this up. They do mention one line. I think Tina maybe says it uh, where they mention that, hey, you're kind of creepy. But that's as far as that goes. But yeah, I think that's why we spend so much time. But I do agree. You could almost make this a kid's movie at times because we spend so much time in the clinic, which, by the way, looks more like a house uh, than an actual like facility. Just saying, I'm pretty sure that may have been due to some budget constraints, though. Well, especially with that, like, slide whistle and really goofy noises with the cops. Yeah. It's yeah. very confusing, this movie's tone. And, okay, so I think the tower farm sequence, which I don't even understand what a tower farm is. Are they talking about, the like, the silo that stores the grain? What's a tower farm? The tower farm party. Or barn, I don't, I don't know. know. Are you talking about like, the party? I gotta say, well, because they're they're just talking about it constantly throughout the movie. They're like, we're going to the tower barn party or the tower farm party, whichever oh. it is. And I, yeah. what kind of name is that? What what's the tower? 
I don't I don't know. Maybe it's I maybe it's just the name someone who owns this name Tower. I don't know. <laughs> I don't... All I get from this is that there's a party happening at the barn. Uh yeah. super Midwest, like deepest reaches of the Midwest. I have never heard that. And I live in the Midwest. I've lived there all my life. To be fair, I've only lived in rural or well, I've only lived in suburbs, so I guess it doesn't really count. Yeah, it, it is one of the worst scenes of the movie The Tower Barn scene that it's just so stupid the dancing shots and everything as well it is a really long sequence like yeah we once again this we spent a lot of time here at the barn just but a lot of time just in general i think one of this is like when the movie is in stupid land for the most part before we wrapped up before we wrap up this review i wanted to mention i just had to mention how bad this scene is so when michael is driving tina around then she gets out jamie starts freaking out I don't know how Loomis knows Tina is in trouble just because of Jamie. Also, Jamie can talk now, magically. Magically, when she couldn't talk earlier. I could not stand when Billy was interpreting for Jamie. And I thought it was funny how Jamie's like, Cookie! gas station and then the cops are like oh yeah we know that gas station (laughs) yeah with the big lady on top they show up in like five seconds i know and i was like the police swarming this area is stupid this script provides no reasonable belief the police would be following loomis's orders and yeah this is what like the fourth time this has happened now oh third time this has happened now well second time this has happened now <laughs> well no because okay the fr- halloween one loomis comes to haddonfield c- takes control of the police halloween four he does the same thing pretty much except all the police are massacred but he still gets right. sheriff meeker on board he does the same thing in this one but it's very confusing because sometimes the police follows orders sometimes they're like we don't work for you and then they bring in the SWAT team, and then they leave, and the police yeah, are like, get away from her, or whatever. It's crazy. Yeah. I think that's probably the worst part, is that they pull a Dark Knight Rises, and all the cops just leave. Yeah. For no reason, except the fact that they think that Michael's going to go to the clinic, even though they know for a fact that he knows that Jamie is here, except they think that he knows that they are at the clinic. Either way, they all just leave. Even the SWAT team gets out of there and goes and goes to the clinic. Once again, we're kind of going back into Halloween 4 territory at this point. Oh, yeah, we definitely are. I got to point out the line, Tina, because Tina is talking about romance and love. She says, like your heart is made of neon. Oh, dear. Uh, we, we aren't in the 70s anymore. This is, this is the 80s. Uh... What kind of line is that? What kind of writing is that? I I can't even imagine a teenage girl saying that. And then we get Jamie's baby wailing. It's so toddler style. And then Tina starts crying unexpectedly when Loomis is like, you need to stay here with her. And she's like, you're really creepy. You know that? And she's got mood swings. And then the police don't listen to Loomis anymore. They're like, we don't take orders from you. And then Loomis stands on top of the stairs and he says, if that girl dies tonight... Which is his classic line. He's always like, That will be death and it'll be your fault. And he points right. his cane. It's so dramatic. And of course, Jamie can magically talk now. 
stupid farm sequence. Somehow Jamie can outrun a car. Here's my thing about the car thing. All right. It's pretty easy to outsmart a car. You just turn around and run the other way. <laughs> it's that it's that easy. That's why when they tell you if a strange car is following you, you just got to turn around and go the other way because then it takes them a while to get into a parking spot and turn around, put the car in reverse, that kind of a thing. It takes longer for them to do that. I don't know why they decided to keep running in the same direction of the car, but the car also didn't catch up to him. So, okay. So, honestly, none of this movie makes sense. I do also find it kind of crazy because none of the cops or SWAT have even seen Michael yet. Neither has Loomis. He only feels like he has. They know something bad has been happening because clearly people are dying. Uh, Everything is just so contrived in this movie. Uh, I... I also found it to be very stupid, though, when Loomis told Michael where to go. Because he yeah. said, you need to go to the house. You you won't... Uh, you need to fight this in the place where it's the strongest, in the place where it all began. And I put in my notes, what is he talking about? What does he know that we don't know? My question is, we come to find out later, too, that the reason why Michael keeps doing this is because of the rage inside of him. It somehow took us five, four movies to get to this point to figure out, oh, this is the way to beat Michael. Uh, Because nothing else worked. Not even burying him worked. This is not going to beat him. I'm taking that this is just another way that they think that they can beat Michael. Because we've come to find out he can't be shot, he can't be burned, he can't be buried. And and even if he fulfills himself, I I doubt that's going to work either. Well, and that's that's a really big issue I had, is Loomis believes Jamie has been concealing the whereabouts of Michael. I don't know why he would think that. But he says, now are you willing to help me? Because Tina is supposedly dead. And Jamie says, can you kill him? And Loomis says, I think so. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Loomis. <laughs> no, no, no. They say... Wait a minute, Loomis. And Loomis says, there isn't a minute to wait. Just horrible lines. But that frustrated me because I'm really sick of this going on and on where they're like, can you kill him? And Loomis is like, yeah, I can. It's the fourth movie and he can't. Right. I don't even know what else to say about Loomis because... His character, especially in this one, is just so weak. And not only that, but the reason why it found... Okay, I think this is kind of what begins to happen uh, or is happening. They think, okay, this is the way we can kill Michael. We bury him. Ah, and make the whole movie about that. Somehow getting to that point where they this idea that they came up with, they can put it into fruition. And this one was like, ah, what if he kills jamie except not really they put him in jail (laughs) and wrote the whole movie around that and it it, it doesn't work it's this it doesn't it doesn't work because there's nothing here that 
really works anyways. It it's just all contrived, like you said. It's just all made up for the sake of the script. If you watch this movie on one point two zero X, it works as a comedy, actually. I believe it. <laughs> Very three stooges with everything. I believe it. There's a bunch of more stupid stuff we could go into, like when the cop is sitting in the car and he sees the cop car coming from behind him. He's like, there's a car approaching. I'll check it out. And then until it like nearly smashes into him, he's like, I think it's one of ours. What gave it away? The flashing lights? Right. Yeah. I think really we've kind of covered essentially everything that's so stupid that isn't already in a, like a duplicate scene somewhere else. Yes. But yeah, that is a really funny one. I I take it Michael stole a cop car? Hmm. Well, Alan, if you don't have anything else... Well, no, okay. I actually want to know what you think of okay. the man in black gunfight at OK Corral here at the end. Like, all of a sudden, it's a western. It's a jailbreak shootout. Uh Yes. Uh, we once again, uh, we've taken a card from uh, Halloween Four, <laughs> and we've killed the entire police force of Haddonfield again. <laughs> a year later, yes. Okay, okay. I'm gonna pull a SpongeBob, and I'm gonna say, why don't we just take Haddonfield and push it somewhere else? <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say about this because I. Honestly, I actually forgot about this scene with the shootout until you brought it up. Yeah, it's silly because everything explodes and Jamie is the only one walking in and all that kind of stuff. It, Yeah, it's very okay corral-ish in a police station that has already been rebuilt. Or I guess not rebuilt, but they've already been restaffed and hey, they're all dead again. <sighs> it's just frustrating because... The only thing the man in black with the steel-toed boots ever does is this. So it just feels like an epilogue, really, not really an ending. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers? It's pretty clear at this point. I don't like it. Uh, filled with, filled to the brim with contrivances. Uh, poor, poor script writing. I I I'm struggling to find something else that I can even call good. Other than the things I've said, there isn't really much. This movie got really boring after ten minutes, and it's so not not necessarily slowly paced, but it's so slow to move from one moment to the next that it just becomes a bore. And like I said, at one point when we were introduced to those two buffoon cops, I came so close to just shutting it off and saying, you know what? No, I'm not even going to deal with this. But I decided to stick through. Luckily, there is only one very small moment where this happens. Anyways, there is nothing more to say about Halloween 5. I've kind of, when I, at the beginning of the podcast, I said it's like a copy between 2 and 4. And I still believe that because there are so many moments that are taken from both of those that it feels like they just looked back at what worked for them before and just did it again. And so... This game of copycat, once again, is becoming something that is just not engaging in the slightest. 
Halloween 5, don't watch it. There's no reason to see it. In my mind, this is almost as bad as 3. That's not saying very much either because the only other one is 4. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard for me to put them in an order because there are moments where each one is better than the other. Anyways, 3 out of 10, high not recommend. There's no reason for this to exist anyways. So, whatever. This movie is worse than I remembered. I remembered actually liking it. This plus the force. Halloween 5 plus Halloween 4 plus Halloween 1 was kind of my Halloween trifecta. Those are the movies I went to. And honestly, yes, this movie introduces the man in black. It ends on a cliffhanger. I never had any desire to go see Halloween 6. Of course, I eventually did. But I was content with this kind of trifecta of movies working. Well, with the SSG goggles on, I see this movie has no story and does nothing to further advance the plot of Jamie and Michael. Yes, this is an original story with decent imitations of the first, but the characters are, are unlikable and the lack of directional narrative is too frustrating to overlook. The only good I use in quotes part about this movie is the ending is fairly creepy mostly because of the set design of the house and use of lighting with michael clearly they're setting this up for a sequel because of the man in black and these two sharing the same tattoo plus there is something more to be explored by michael and jamie's link plus somehow loomis knows something we don't about this rage that infected michael at his house and he is capable of fighting this ambiguously named rage I don't care to come back for the sequel, but I will. Ultimately, this movie feels like a waste of time because of its radical tone shifts, horrible characters, lack of direction, and not advancing the story in a satisfying way. If a movie can't stand alone but has to rely on future sequels to prop it up, then it's not worth it. I'm giving Halloween 5 The Revenge of Michael Myers 4 stars out of 10 with a solid not recommend. I'm going to be honest with you at one point, and I, maybe this is true. I don't know yet. But at one point, I had a theory, and I was like, I bet you it's Jamie Lee Curtis as the man in black. It, it never does say it in the movie, but. Oh, that'd be hilarious. I know. I don't know if, like I said, I don't know if I've seen, I don't know if that's going to be true with the sequels. I doubt it, but that'd be an, that'd be an interesting twist. Uh, it wouldn't make any sense, but it, w it would be an interesting twist. I expected that from Halloween 5, but it never goes there. That would be interesting. We technically don't know the sex of the individual. I guess they could be male or female. We don't know. I'm just assuming yeah. wearing boots like that. And it just seems those look like male boots to me. I don't know. Honestly, I was semi-high on the last movie. I enjoyed it. I will come back to it. But this one took a sharp drop off a cliff, unfortunately. I don't think it's as I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as number three, but it's to me it's the second worst so far. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you on that. Uh, not as bad as three, but it is getting pretty close. Uh, a bit too close for comfort. I'm a bit scared now for what's going to happen next because if they're just going to continue this game of copycat, oh, we're going to have a, a, big, a bit of an issue here. Well, so far we are halfway through the series. 
And my order is number one, number four, number two, number five, and number three. For me, it is one, two, four, three, two. No, one, four, one, two. Let me try this again. One, two, four, five, three. There we go. (laughs) That's my order. That makes sense. Honestly, this might be controversial, but I would rather watch Halloween 4 over Halloween 2. I think Halloween 2 is shot better and it's it's creepier, but it doesn't work very well as a standalone movie. Laurie Strode's barely in it. I was really disappointed with it. Even though I gave it a 7, which I'm kind of thinking I gave it too high of a rating, but... Honestly, I think Halloween 4 is fairly self-contained. I, I think Halloween 4 is far better than Halloween 5. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I can agree with that completely, but I will say in some aspects that make me put it higher in the list, I will say it's better than 5. Uh, I still think that 2 feels a bit more like the original... Uh, in terms of style, and that's why I put it as high as I do. Uh, it's not great, uh, not by a long shot, uh, but I found it to be, like we said in the podcast, it's just added on DLC for if you loved Halloween, then you'll probably like to see this, the might continues, essentially. That's why I liked it, is because similar styles, uh, kind of, uh, but continues the night. We still have Jamie Lee Curtis for however much he's in it and all that kind of stuff. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us in the fifth installment of our Halloween retrospective series. Thank you for trooping along with us with this one. This one was a little difficult to get through, but I got to say, I am actually looking forward to talking about Halloween 6 or Halloween 666, The Curse of Michael Myers. That movie has a very interesting production history, so we will have a number of things to talk about. And we will be reviewing the theatrical cut and the producer's cut, which many feel is vastly superior and circulated as a bootleg copy. You could only find on eBay or in shady corners of Comic-Con for many, many years until it was officially released just a couple years ago, so... We've got both copies. We're going to be taking a look at both editions. I'm really looking forward to discussing the theatrical and producer's cut for this movie. I got to say, I have seen them. They are very different. Interesting. I'm actually curious to see what those differences are because it sounds like it's a pretty big deal. Are you a Paul Rudd fan? Well, if you are, make sure to join us for his very first movie, Halloween 6. Wait, are you serious? Yes. Are you? Ah, now I'm excited. At first I was talking about, I thought you were talking about Jurassic Park, uh, uh, Jurassic World, which is next week. Uh, And I was like, that's not his first movie. (laughs) Next week we will be coming back for Jurassic World, leading up to this summer's blockbuster Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom. The week after that, we will be doing a standalone review. We will be looking at Martin Scorsese's most recent film, Silence. And the week after now that... that, I'm very excited to talk about. I love that. Well, I'll save my thoughts for later. 
that will be a very interesting discussion you won't want to miss listeners because we will have a lot to say and explore with what silence is talking about and then we will be coming back at the very end of this month with solo a star wars story i gotta say i am looking forward to seeing what they can do with this one it's been teased for a really long time it was the guys from 21 Jump Street in the Lego movie, they got fired. Then we got Ron Howard, who I love. I think he's an incredible director. I love him as Opie on the Andy Griffith Show. Got a pretty nice star-studded cast. I'm really hoping they do justice to this classic character. Yeah, and 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 we're also going to have a special guest. Again, surprise, uh, coming on for Solo. So... I'll just keep you in suspense as to who that is. It's not the same from last time uh, when we did Jurassic Park, the original. Somebody different. Uh, You may have already heard him by the time this recording comes out, however. Well, listeners, you've got a lot to look forward to. We've got a lot to look forward to with these movie reviews coming out. We're just pushing out great content. We will have more great content this summer as well make sure to go over to the youtube channel make sure to click subscribe because we do a lot of brand new spoiler free weekend of release movies we're trying to push out as many of those as we can so go over to the youtube channel click the like button on those videos make sure to share with your friends also you can subscribe through your favorite social media platforms we're on there it'll give you all the latest updates and of course check out written reviews and guides on the website once again thank you so much listeners for joining us on this retrospective series and we will catch you next time Do you know what our next podcast coming up is? Oh, I can look that up. Ah, it's, oh, I know exactly what it is. Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah, that's right, because we're recording on. Yeah, we're recording that Saturday. Okay.